evening. Thank you. Thank you very much. I appreciate that very much. And before I start, I have to apologize. I normally do not dress like this when I come up on the stage, but we came in from Manchester on a two-hour train ride, and then the, um, I'm speaking at Pentonville Prison in the morning, and the hotel is closer to there, I understand, and we had... Are you aware of the traffic that's in this town? <laughs> well, we didn't have time to go to the hotel and change, and we didn't want to be late, so sorry about that, and I don't mean to sponsor Nike at all, but these are my traveling clothes. But anyway, uh, really great to be here. This has been an amazing uh, journey for me so far. We arrived in town um, last Friday, the 24th, I believe. We've had a number of engagements, even on the Isle of Man. On Thursday night, we had a, a packed house there, and it's been really wonderful. Last night, we were at Victory Outreach in uh, Manchester, a church that I do a lot with uh, back in the States. And it's been so very blessed for me uh, on this trip and my family. My wife and daughter are here. So I want to thank you all for coming tonight. And, um, and I know we'll finish up here and I go home next Monday, the 10th, and we have a number of more dates. Keep that in prayer because I think lives are being impacted and I'm certainly being impacted by this. And we want this journey to continue for the Lord. And, um, you know, every time I come up and speak, people, my prayer is always the same. Realizing that I'm really just a messenger here tonight. And I really mean that. I'm not here to impose my faith on anyone. I'm not here to try to turn anybody into a Christian. It's not what I do. I'm here merely to share what the Lord has done in my life. And I think as Christians, that's what we're obligated to do. We can't turn anybody into a Christian. That's not what we're supposed to do. But we are obligated to share what the Lord has done in our life. Mark 16, 13, the Lord's last command to all of us, go out and preach the good word to all of creation. And that's what I try to do, and God has really blessed this ministry as a result of that over the past 15 years. And uh, knowing that, you know, my prayer is always the same. You know, I'm here to plant seeds in your heart tonight, really. And my prayer is always, Lord, let me be effective, let me be passionate enough in delivering this message so that you can reach out and touch the, the heart that you want to touch in this room tonight. Now, it might be one person. It might be ten. It might be everybody in the room. I don't know, and I don't worry about that. That's God's deal. But my job is to be effective. And I can guarantee you, guarantee you, somebody's going to be impacted by the message here tonight. I'll be out by the book table later. Somebody's going to come over to me. It happens every time. And, and they're going to say, Michael, I was the one person that really needed to be in that room tonight. The Holy Spirit spoke to me. I'm going through some stuff. And it was really very, very encouraging what I had to say. It happens every time. And some of you are going to walk out of here. You're going to say, ah, pretty good story. I heard something like that before. You're going to go about your business. But I will tell you this. That seed will be planted in your heart tonight. How do I know that? Because the Holy Spirit doesn't waste opportunities when He has His people together. That seed will be planted. It might take 20 years before God waters and nourishes that seed. But I will tell you this. Once God's got a hold of your heart, he will never let you go. So you may as well make it easy on yourself. Start tonight because God is going to get you, no doubt about it. And you know, before I start, I want you to take a real good look at me, people. And I really mean this. I'm probably the most blessed, most fortunate person that's ever going to walk up on this stage and talk to you about anything. And the reason I say that is because had I been left up to my own to do what I wanted to do in my life and follow the path that I was on, I'd either be dead or in prison for the rest of my life. And quite honestly, that's what I deserved. That's what I earned having spent over 20 years on the street every day, and I mean every day, in violation of both God's laws and the laws of man. I did it knowingly and willingly. Nobody pushed me into that life. It's a criminal lifestyle. Nobody pushed me into it, 
And there were times when I was very uncomfortable with what I was doing, but I did it anyway. I was a knowing and willing sinner. And God has made it crystal clear for me over the past 20 years that if He didn't have a different plan and a purpose for my life, I wouldn't be here tonight. He's made it so clear to me. And you know, I don't know any of you in here tonight, but I guarantee you, some of you walked in the door tonight, and you're going through some stuff in your own life, some challenges, some struggles. It happens to all of us. And if you're not going through it tonight, you probably went through it yesterday. And if it wasn't yesterday or tonight, God forbid, it might be a challenge or a struggle you'll face tomorrow. That's just life. And I know some of you need encouragement. And I want to tell you this, some of you are struggling with your past life. You know, I've been so bad in my life. I've done so many horrible things. God can never forgive me. I can never turn it around. Well, I want to encourage you in this way. If God can forgive me, and I really believe He has people, and there's no arrogance in that whatsoever. I struggled mightily with forgiveness. You don't do what I did for 20 years, get on your knees, say a prayer, and think it's all over. No. I struggled mightily with forgiveness. But the closer I got to God, and the more I read my Bible, and the more I understood what my faith was all about, I've come to realize the entire message of the Bible, the entire message of the cross, is about God's forgiveness, His mercy, and His grace. That's it. That's the entire message. And if we sincerely confess our sins, and the word here is sincerely, because people, I'll tell you this, I was pretty good on the street. I pulled a lot of scams. I could probably pull the wool over every one of your eyes. You can walk out of here saying, what a great guy, so close to the Lord. And I can be not that guy when I get off the stage. I can do that. But I learned one thing. You don't pull a scam on God. He knows our hearts. And if we sincerely are sorry, we confess our sins, and we accept our, our Lord as our Savior, our sins are forgiven. That's it. And if God can forgive me, and not only forgive me, but give me my life, give me my freedom, a wife that I adore, children that I love, a ministry that I never asked for, this was the last thing I ever thought I'd be doing in my life, people. I had no clue. I can't claim credit for it. God navigated this course for me, and I came kicking and, and scratching all the way into the ministry. I couldn't understand the word Michael Francis next to ministry. It didn't make sense to me. But over a period of time, God showed me, you know, this is the direction I want you in. And I became obedient at some point in time and followed the path, and this is the result. And if God can do this for me, people, then He can and He will do it for anyone. And that's really the message. My message is one of encouragement and one of hope. And if you get anything out of tonight, okay, I don't want you to focus on the mob stuff. Yeah, let me tell you, you want to see mob stories? There's five or six documentaries about me out there. You know, you can go on Twitter and Facebook. There's a million movies about the mob. Okay, you can watch all of that. It's not important. What is important is what God did through that life to get me to where I am today. Because remember this, people. What the enemy meant for bad, our God will turn around and use for His glory. And that's really been my story. And I hope you can identify with your own lives, because that's what it's really about. Whenever we come up here, it's not about us. It's about what God has got done through our lives and how you apply it to your own. And I'll tell you this, I'm very selfish when I come up here and speak, because I'm determined. I want you to walk out of here a little bit differently than when you walked in. I'm not here to entertain you. I hope I can keep your attention, but it's really all about, okay, how this impacts your own life. So I hope you take that seriously, people. Because we serve an amazing God. And I hope through my story you can witness that for yourself tonight. So that's about it. Now, it is a mob story. I'm going to tell you a little bit about that. You know, it's funny. When I'm out in certain places in, uh, 
in the United States, like the Midwest, the Down South, I have to do a little Mob 101. Okay, I have to educate them. When I'm in New York, I don't have to do that. I have to worry that there's nobody in the audience still mad at me. You know, it's a whole different thing. But uh, I know you know a little bit about that life, but you get a little bit more of an education tonight. My dad was the underboss of the Colombo family back in the 1960s, one of the five Mafia La Cosa Nostra families in New York. And by the way, there really is no Mafia in the United States. The Mafia exists in Italy. In the United States, it's called La Cosa Nostra. It means this thing of ours. There's similar organizations, but if you're a made guy in Italy, you take the oath to be a made man in the Mafia in Italy, you're not automatically made in the United States, and vice versa. When people from the Mafia would come over to our country, we were courteous to them, obviously. We were respectful, but we didn't share our secrets because they're two separate organizations. And the underboss is a very powerful position. In that life, you have a boss, an underboss, a cop regime, or captain, and a soldier. I'm sure many of you have seen The Godfather. There is a position called consigliere. Robert Duvall played that role. He played it brilliantly, I might add. But in The Godfather, it was fictional. Because in order to be a sworn, made member of that life and take the oath, and you do take an oath, your father must be Italian. Your mom can be of another descent, but your dad must be Italian. And my dad, in terms of law enforcement investigation, media attention, he was very, very high profile, always under investigation, always a major target of law enforcement, kind of like the John Gotti of his day. I'm sure many of you have heard of John. He's had so much attention. And uh, I grew up, I assume, a lot differently than everybody in this room. I grew up hating the police. I hated law enforcement, and I hated the government. And not because my dad taught me that way. He was smart. He taught me to respect the law. But it was really because of what, what I witnessed as a kid growing up. Law enforcement tactics, techniques against organized crime were very different back then than they are today in the United States. Today, everything is very covert. They got a lot of undercover informants, a lot of high-tech surveillance equipment. Today, a guy can be under investigation and not really know about it until it's too late. Back in my day, when my dad was under investigation, I lived in Brooklyn, later on Long Island. My dad, they wanted him to know about it. And for a period of about 10 years, when I was a kid growing up, my dad was under investigation from seven or eight different law enforcement agencies. The federal government, the FBI, uh, IRS, Queens Detectives, Brooklyn DA, you name it, they were on him. And every one of these agencies would have a car parked around my house. 24 hours a day, seven days a week. I was one of seven kids. Whenever we as a family would leave to go anywhere, we had a parade of law enforcement vehicles following us. Everybody knew when we were coming into town. And I witnessed some things that were kind of unpleasant. That was a rough detail. Every once in a while, the agents would get a little out of hand. I remember one day, I was 10 years old. I was playing ball on the street. We lived on kind of an incline. Kid throws a ball, it goes over my head, it rolls down to where two of the agents are sitting in their car. As the ball approaches the car, one guy gets out, He's a big, burly guy, and he uh, approaches the ball, and he stops it with his foot. And I get up to him, and I said, sir, can I have my ball back, please? And he looks at me. He's got a jacket on. He pulls his jacket aside. He's got a gun in there, and he said, this is for your old man one day. Kind of scary when you're 10 years old. Another time, we went out to a restaurant. As a family, we would sit down, have a bite to eat. They would file in afterwards and sit in a table behind us and watch us eat, right? This one particular night, again, agent got a little out of hand passed by my table, made a nasty remark to my dad. Now, he didn't like that. You don't disrespect my father, especially in front of his family. Dad jumped up, went right after the agent. The agent got scared. My dad was a tough guy. Pulled out his gun right in the middle of the restaurant. Everybody started screaming. I remember my dad saying, go ahead, I'll drop you before you get off a shot. Good stuff when you're eating, right? Me and my brother jumped in between him, separated him, pulled him apart. You know, normal stuff you do when you're a kid. <clears throat> and, uh, and so I didn't like them very much back then. 
But I want to make this very clear now, especially to the young people I see in this audience here tonight. I do not feel that way anymore. I finally realized in my life, people, that they were the good guys and we were the bad guys, at least most of the time. Look, any walk of life, anybody can get out of hand. But you know, people, it's amazing. It's amazing how God can not only transform a heart, and I believe you know He can do that, but how He can transform a mind. How this old distorted sense of view I had growing up where good was bad and bad was good. God's been able to fix that. Today, some of my dearest friends are in law enforcement all over this country, my country. And not because I share information. I don't do that. We're just friends. Many of us brothers and sisters in Christ. And I really learned, people, we really are all one in the kingdom of God. And I'll tell you, I give a very, very strong anti-crime message to all of our young people all over, this, all over our country. I keep saying that. That's one of the reasons why I'm going into Pentonville Prison tomorrow, because I have a real heart for inmates and young kids that are going through a lot of struggles. And I visit detention centers. I go to juvenile halls. I have seven kids of my own, so we've got to pay attention to our kids because we're going to lose a lot of them. And I tell these kids straight out, I don't hold back. In America, you don't get away with criminal conduct anymore. Forget about it. Law enforcement is too sophisticated. They've got too many weapons. There's too many informants on the street. If you go that route, you're going down. It's only a matter of time. And one of the greatest messages you can give our young people today is this. It applies to all of us, I believe, but certainly to our young people. Listen up. In this world today, you are who you hang out with. You hang with the wrong crowd. I don't care if you've got great parents. You go to a good school, dress up nice. You're going to be known to be the wrong type of person. And they will influence you all. We are influenced by the people we hang out with. You know, I want to tell you a secret. When I came to Christ, I didn't get a lobotomy. I don't forget the 20 years I put on the street. And sometimes I get off a plane in New York. Somebody looks at me the wrong way. I'm ready to go. It's like 20 years of ministry went out of the street. And I'm the mob guy again. It happens like this. We must surround ourselves with the right people. I've been so blessed in my life to have people around me that keep me accountable. And I don't, know, I don't want to make a mistake because I have tendencies. You come to Christ, you don't become perfect. We still have all these distractions in the world that can try to lead us the wrong way. We have to stay with the right people. I've had so many guys tell me, the men are great for this. Mike, I don't have to go to church. Church is in my house. Well, let me tell you something. Church is not in your house. Church is right here in church. Churches where you come and hear this great worship music, you give praise and honor and glory to our God. It's where you hear a great message from the pastor that prepares us for all the stuff we have to deal with during the week that we don't know where it's going to come from. Okay, it's where you go out in the hall and you have a cup of coffee or tea with like-minded people who love the Lord. You get involved in a small group. We must constantly be nourished people. We live in a tough world. And these young people especially, they must surround themselves with the right people. It's so important. But back then it was different. I loved my father. I idolized my dad. He was a great father, great husband to my mother. I didn't care what people said about him. Kids would make remarks about him in the schoolyard. I would fight. He was a great father, very, very supportive of me. He didn't want this life for originally, originally for me. He wanted me to go to school, be a doctor. Son, stay off the street, get an education. That's what it's all about. And I was on that road until he got in some very serious trouble back in the 60s. He was indicted and charged three times in the state of New York for some very serious crimes, grand larceny, homicide. Went to trial on all three of those cases and was eventually acquitted, found not guilty in court. But then in 1966, Dad was indicted in federal court for masterminding a nationwide string of bank robberies. After a lengthy trial, he was convicted, and in 1967, my dad was sentenced to 50, 50 years in prison. It was the longest sentence ever given for a bank robbery conspiracy case up to that point. 
1970, after he lost all his appeals, he was shipped off to Leavenworth Penitentiary, a high-security institution in Kansas, to do his time. Now, I was a pre-med student at Hofstra University when Dad went in. I was devastated. He was 50 years old when he went in. I figured he had 50 on top of that. He'd never come out of prison alive. Just as an aside, my dad just turned 100 years old. Yes, he's done. Yes, that, that deserves a hand. Yes. Thank you. He's done 38 years in prison since 1970. He's been in and out five times, each time for violating his parole and each time for associating with another felon or somebody alleged to be an organized crime. When I was on parole, I had 526 people on my separation list. The feds actually give you a list with people you can't associate with. Some of them on a list I never heard of. Some of them were dead. They don't even let you go to a cemetery and meet with anybody. The feds are tough in, in the States. My dad had a problem with that. He'd come out. He'd meet with people. He thought he was being covert. They would surveil him. They locked him up five times. About six years ago, he was in a penitentiary in Milan, Michigan, on his fifth violation. I go to see him. I said, Dad, come on, man. You're 93 years old. You've got to stop meeting with people. He said to me, son, what do you want me to do? I don't know anybody that's not a felon. He said, even you're a felon. I said, I know that, Dad, but you're allowed to see me. I was number one on his list. It took me over two years to get off his list. The feds are tough in, in the States, let me tell you. But the sad thing about my dad, he gets out on that last violation. Within a year and a half, he was indicted on another major case. He went to trial, got convicted, and they gave him another eight years. My dad's back in prison now. Okay, he's been there for the last five or six years. But his release date is June of this year. So he's coming home in a, in a couple of months. It's going to be very interesting when he does get out. But just a little trivia, in case you happen to be playing a mob game around the coffee table or something. My dad's the oldest inmate in the, uh, in the United States. The oldest, at 100. He's also the oldest made guy in America. He's been part of that life 68 years. He took the old 68 years ago. He goes back to the days of Lucky Luciano and Costello. He's kind of a legend in that life. So. But here's what's more important to me. I want you to pray for my dad. You know, you know what it is when you're a Christian, you start to, uh, you, you try to minister to your family. They look at you like, all right, when you get out of this hypnotic spell you're in, let us know. But I've been really working on him, and I have to say this. God bless the women. The women are just amazing. I have so many women coming up to me all the time. Michael, I've been praying for my husband for 20 years. I can't get him to come into church. Praying for my father for 30 years. He doesn't want to listen. Let me buy you a book. He loves the mob stuff. Hey, who knows what God's going to use to bring somebody to the Lord, right? But God bless the women. Women can be prayer warriors. And I'll tell you this. There's a woman in my life that I believe prayed me to where I am right now. And I'll get to that. But anyway, just to encourage you. You know, don't ever give up on prayer. One of the greatest stories in the Bible that sometimes we overlook is what? The thief on the cross. Remember that day? Here's that thief. Hanging on the cross next to Jesus. I don't think he knew Jesus before that day. But he saw something in our Lord. That really touched his heart. And he looked at Jesus. And what did he say? He said, Lord, remember me today in your kingdom. And what did Jesus say? He looked at that man. He didn't say, hey, wait a minute. I'm innocent. You're guilty. You've got to pay the price. He looked at that man, saw he was sincere. And what did he say? He said, today you'll be with me in paradise. He wiped out a life of crime and sin for this man in one second. That's the kind of God that we serve. Remember, don't ever give up in prayer. It might be a deathbed experience for the one you love. But let me tell you another encouraging passage in the Bible. I don't know if you know this. Okay, but I caught this one. It really meant a lot to me because of what I do. Jesus was asked, 
What is your mission on earth, Lord? And you know what his response was? Very telling. He said, not to lose one soul for my Father. You know what that means to me? Anyone who knows the name of Jesus, in God's time, for God's purpose, and in His place, they will come to the Lord. I really believe that. Because I believe His track record is a million percent. So don't ever give up on prayer. Please pray for my dad. His name is Sonny. Okay, it might be a deathbed experience for him because he's old school, very cantankerous, but I want him up there. He'll drive me crazy, but it's okay. I want him up there with me. So keep him in mind. And uh, Joe Colombo, the boss of my family, he kind of took me under his wing when dad went in. Started to meet a lot of my dad's friends. Mike, what are you doing going to school? If you don't help your father out, he's going to die in prison. I'm very affected by that. Because people, I will tell you this, my dad did a lot of bad things in his life, no doubt about it. So did I. I went to jail for a crime that I was guilty of. I pled guilty. But that particular crime that my dad did all this time for, he was innocent of. My dad was no bank robber. I'll take that to my grave. I investigated that case thoroughly. We spoke to every witness that that testified against him. They recanted their testimony. We gave them a lie detector test, proved they lied at the trial. We can never get the conviction overturned. But what does that tell you? It's what I tell the young people. You put your hand in the fire long enough, you're going to get burned. Our systems are not always fair. You put that bullseye on your back, you stay in that life, you're going to go down. That's just the way it is. You know, I tell these young people another thing. Life can be so difficult even when everything is going well for us. We don't know what's going to happen. Things just happen out of nowhere. When you put more baggage on your shoulders that you've got to carry around because you make wrong decisions, you suffer consequences, before you know it, you're 35, 40, 50 years old, you say, what the heck did I do? We've got to play it straight in this life. And the way to play it straight is to get Jesus into your heart. He makes you better. So... <clears throat> I go see Dad and Levmore. Dad, I'm not going to school anymore. If I don't help you out, you're going to die in here. He was upset. He didn't want that for me. We went at it back and forth, back and forth. Finally, my dad knew I was a pretty headstrong kid. My mind was made up. I'll never forget, he kind of threw up his hands and he said, Okay, son, but if you're going to be on the street, I want you on the street the right way. In his mind, the right way was to become a member of his life. He looked at me, he said, Go home, somebody's going to be in touch with you. You do whatever you're told. That was it. He didn't give me any instruction. He didn't say, this is what's required of you. Nothing. Just go home and do what you're told. You know why? That life is a secret life, and you're not supposed to talk about the life with anybody outside of it. If my dad is anything, he's a good soldier. He wouldn't violate that policy, even with me, his own son. He just knew I had it in me. Go home and do what you're told. And you know, one thing I really respected about my dad, many things, but this in particular, he never brought what was going on in the outside world into our home. In our home, we were a family. He didn't even talk about it. He didn't acknowledge it. He didn't talk about his other life. Okay, we were a family. Everything I knew about my dad was through observation, from others, through the media, never from him directly. He just didn't do that. But when he told me to do that, I didn't question him. I didn't say, wait a second, Dad, what do do I have to do? I know you live a little bit differently, but he never explained it to me. I never questioned him. Do you know why? I love my dad so much, I had blind faith. And what he wanted me to do. Blind faith. Now let me ask you, as a Christian, have you ever heard that we're supposed to have blind faith? Don't ever question God. Don't ever challenge God. He's God. He'll be upset. Just believe it. You're a sheep being led, okay, to whatever you're told to believe. Well, you know what? I didn't have blind faith. When I came to Christ, I challenged Him. And one of the reasons I challenged Him was because of this meeting. You know, when you finally get into this relationship with Jesus, and I know many of you have, have, have that relationship already. Some of you don't. But when you get into this relationship with Jesus, you kind of look back in your life and you say, you know what, God, now I get it. 
Now I know why you put this person in my life. Now I know why you gave me this great joy, why you allowed me, not caused me. God does not cause us to go through struggles. We live in a fallen world. That's it. We've got to accept that. He doesn't cause it, but he'll use those circumstances, okay, to get us to a place that he wants us to be. When you finally realize that you look back in your life, you say, now I get it. This meeting, I really get it. I really get it. My dad was proposing me into a criminal lifestyle. But more than that, because of this time, I challenged God. I said, wait a second, God. I love my father more than anything. I followed him blindly into this life, and look where it got me. And it got me in a very bad place. I'll get to that. Take it a step further in my life. I took a blood oath. I surrendered my life to La Cosa Nostra. People, you come into this life, you've got to give it all up. Body, mind, and soul. It's a whole subculture from everything else that exists. If you're not in it all the way, you don't survive. I said, God, I did this twice in my life. I can't do this again. If you really are God, if this Bible is written by men but inspired by you, the blueprint for our life, that's how I look at it. It's God's Word in our life. You take it a step further. As a Christian, we're supposed to believe the only way to get to heaven is through Jesus Christ. No gray area. Black and white. Jesus or nothing. I said, well, you know what, God? You're asking a lot of me. You brought me into this world. I didn't ask to come here. You gave me a free will. You said I can choose one of any hundred faiths, or I don't have to choose any faith at all. And now you're telling me this is the only way to go? No, God, you've got to prove it to me. You've got to show me the evidence. And people, I know a little bit about evidence. I've been to trial five times in the States. Three state cases, two federal racketeering cases. I've been to more grand juries than there are people in this room, more parole hearings than there are people in that room. I've either been in prison myself or visiting my dad in prison consistently since I'm five years old. I know the system. Evidence has played a major part in my life. You grow up on the street, you get kind of cynical. I always tell people, you don't sell me the Brooklyn Bridge when I'm paying attention. I want to see the evidence. I want to see the facts. I don't take a lot on face value. I'm a cynical guy. It's just how it is, my upbringing. And I want to tell you this. When I challenge God in that way, he didn't get upset with me. He didn't say, how dare you? I'm God. I believe what he said is, okay, my son, if you're ready to open up your heart and your stubborn mind, I'm ready to show you because I am God and I do have the evidence. And people, I want to tell you this, and I'm speaking specifically to the men. I do a lot of men's groups. I still get down with the men. Can't help it. It's my way. And they come at me all the time. Well, Michael, how do you know? You know how I know? Because I did the work. I did the work. When you finally open up your heart and your mind and you really do the work, you're going to find out what I found out. There is more evidence, more rock-solid evidence. Not some pastor trying to push something down your throat. There's more evidence to prove that the Bible is God's Word and that Jesus is our risen Savior. Because I don't know about any of you. I don't put my faith in anybody that's dead and buried in a tomb. I learned long ago, dead people don't help us. There's more evidence to prove that than there is anything else that exists in the world. And if you do nothing, when you leave here tonight, do the work. Because people... There's nothing more important to any one of us than where we're going to spend all of eternity. That's it. Our goal is to get to heaven. And if the only way is through Jesus Christ, then what are you waiting for? And if you don't believe that, well then disprove it to yourself. Because I guarantee, like so many atheists, Trulie Strobel and so many of those brothers now that I know, who set out trying to disprove God's existence and Jesus as our Savior have become the strongest people of our faith. Why? Because the evidence is clear, people. It's clear. So I encourage you to do that, really. I left there that day. About two weeks later, a captain in the family picked me up, took me to see the boss. Joe Colombo had been shot and seriously wounded at a big rally that we had. He eventually died from the wounds. 
A new boss took over. His name was Tom DeBella. Tom has passed on. Now I sat with Tom. Mike, I got a message from your father. He said, you want to become a member of our life. Is that true? I said, yes. He said, here's the deal. From now on, 24 hours a day, seven days a week, you're on call to serve this family, the Colombo family. That means if your mother is sick and she's dying and you're at her bedside, we call you to service. You leave your mother. You come and serve us. From now on, we're number one in your life before anything and everything. When and if we feel you deserve this privilege, this honor to become a member, we'll let you know. It's like you said, people, the mob is not a business. It's a way of life. It's a whole subculture from everything else that exists. And we are told straight out, it comes before anything and everything in our life when we come in there. And we have to treat it that way. We don't survive. <clears throat> and um, I was 22 years old. And uh, I left it at there. It was in kind of like a pledge period where I had to do anything and everything I was told to do to prove myself worthy. Could have been something very menial. There's a lot of discipline in that life. A lot of authority. A lot of alleged respect. You had a meeting at 8 o'clock. You weren't there by 7.30. You were late. You can never be late in that life. Never. Drive the boss to a meeting. Sit in a car. Three, four, five hours. Waiting for him. Until he comes out. God forbid you leave. To go to the restroom. Get a newspaper. He comes out. You're not there. You're in trouble. I know I did that once. And I paid the price. A lot of stuff like that. And people, I want to be really honest with you tonight because you need to understand what God has done in my life. And if you see that as anything happening, okay, then apply it to your own life. That life at times is very violent. And if you're part of the life, you're part of the violence, and there's no escape. And if anybody tells you differently, they're either not being honest with you or they weren't a made member of that life. And I think you know what I mean. The reason I say that, for those of you that are struggling with your own sin, if you think God can't forgive you, after you hear what he's done for me, what do you worry about? And that's why I tell you, really to encourage you. <clears throat> After about a year and a half, I proved myself worthy. Halloween night, 1975, 41 years ago, this past October in the States, I took an oath with five other gentlemen. That night we all became sworn, made members of the Colombo family. I took that oath very seriously back then. I take it seriously tonight, even though I don't consider myself a member of that life anymore. You come into the life, you don't sign a contract. There's no retirement age. What I know about that life is in my heart, my mind, obviously not easily forgotten. And you know what they say. They say when you leave that life, either leave in a coffin or you join the government and enter a witness protection program. Obviously, I've done neither at this point in time. It was a very solemn ceremony. Dimly lit room, late at night. The six of us walked in individually. They wanted you to understand the seriousness of what you were getting involved in. The boss was seated at the head of like a horseshoe configuration, the underboss and the consigliere to his left and right. The captains were alongside of them. I walked down the aisle, stood in front of the boss, held out my hand. He took my knife, cut my finger right here. Some blood dropped on the floor. This is a blood oath. I cupped my hands. He took a picture of a saint, Catholic altar card, put it on my hands and lit it aflame. It didn't hurt. It burned quickly. It was merely symbolic. And he said something to me that night I don't recall ever hearing in my life before. And I grew up as a Catholic. I went to Catholic school from kindergarten right through high school. I was an altar boy the whole bit. But for me, for some reason, Catholicism was like a subject in school. I didn't understand that this entire life, people, is about a relationship with Jesus. I could say that a thousand times because that's how it's worked in my life and so many others. It's all about relationship. And when he said that, and I'm not blaming Catholics. It just didn't work for me. And when he said this to me, it was the first time I recall hearing it. He said, tonight, Michael Francis, you are born again into a new life, into La Cosa Nostra, this thing of ours. Violate what you know about this life, betray your brothers, and you will die, and you'll burn in hell like the saint is burning in your hands. He said, do you accept? I said, yes, I do. The other five guys walked in the room. They all took the oath. I've got to repeat something. You know, sometimes you're up here, 
And the Spirit just moves you to say something that you might not have said ordinarily. Um, I had just finished um, sharing in Beth Israel Temple in New Jersey. And uh, it's run by John, Pastor Jonathan Kahn. He was Jewish at one time, and now he's a, a strong person of Christ. And I love Jonathan. They're a brilliant, brilliant biblical scholar. Anyway, I walked off the stage. I walked down the center of the aisle heading towards the back, and some guy comes up to me, and he's got this really concerned look on his face, and he puts his hands my, on my shoulders, and he says, Michael, I need to stop you. I've got to tell you what happened. I said, what happened? He said, when you were up there repeating that oath, I had a vision, and it scared me. I said, what was your vision? He said, I had a vision of Satan standing behind you with his hands on your shoulders, looking up at the sky and saying, I'll show you what born again means. I got one of yours. And I had said this a thousand times before, but it gave me the chills. I never kind of thought of it that way. But you know, that is, that's a tough lifestyle. And it made me think of something, people. The enemy has two functions in my view here on earth, and I think biblically I'm supported by this. First, separate us from God. Put guilt in our mind. Put doubt in our mind. God can never forgive you. You're too bad a person. Okay, you can never be redeemed. You're a bad person. He'll use everything in his arsenal to separate us from God. All the stuff we have on our phone. These kids today have more negative influences at their fingertips than we ever had as kids growing up, many of us that are my age. All of this is to separate us from God. And he's very good at doing that. Secondly, he wants to mock our God. How do I know that? Remember Jesus in the temple, 40 days and 40 nights, he was fasting. The enemy appeared to him three times. The third time, what did he do? He gave him a vision of this city. And he said, get down on your knees and praise me and all of this will be yours. I believe he knew Jesus wasn't going for it, but he was mocking our God. Now, how do we defend that? Paul tells us. We put on the armor of the Holy Spirit. You know what that makes us do, people? It makes us recognize that all these attacks on us are attacks from the enemy. And the closer we get to the Lord, the easier it is to back them off. And when we do fall, what happens? We're immediately convicted. And we get on our knees and we ask for forgiveness. And our gracious and loving God, He forgives us. And we go on to do better. You can't help it. When you're a Christian, you can't help but do better, people. Not perfection. I'm still a sinner. I believe I'm a lot better than I was once before because I have a conscience now for the sin. And I am bothered when I do it. I might do it again and again, but I keep asking forgiveness because I'm weak and sometimes I just ask the Lord to make me better. Don't get discouraged when you fall because we have a God that continues to forgive us. <clears throat> so, um, I come into that life, I'm, I'm motivated to do two things. One, get that out of prison. I did get him out after 10 years on parole. Told you what happened after that. Secondly, I wanted to make money. My dad says in this life you make money, it translates to power. Not unlike the real world. I was extremely motivated to be the best possible mob, mob guy I could be. And I wanted to make my dad proud. I was very fortunate. You saw the DVD. No need to go into it. I was very fortunate in that I knew how to use that life to benefit me in business. I was very aggressive on the street. I brought new things into the family they hadn't done before. And I went on to make a very significant amount of money. In 1980, the boss of my family, Carmine Persico, he's now doing life in prison. He came to me and said, Mike, you're doing a great job. I'm going to make you a cop regime, a captain. That's it. The boss says you're a captain. That's it. And from 1980 until 95, when I consider myself formally removed from that life, I operated in that capacity. And I want to tell you where I was in 1984 when I believe God started to make this transition in my life. 1984, I'm a captain in a family. Quite honestly, they were grooming me to be either the boss or the underboss. The boss had a son. He and I came at the same age. Our fathers were grooming us to take over the family. Boss, underboss, whatever way it worked out. 
I became a major target of law enforcement, like I said. I went to trial five times. I was either acquitted or dismissed in every case. I beat Rudy Giuliani. I'm sure many of you know who he is. I was the first major mob guy he indicted under the RICO statute. I was the lead defendant. I had 15 co-defendants. The day of my arraignment, he gave me a million-dollar bail. He came come up to me in the courtroom. He says, Francis, if I convict you on this case, you're going to get double what your father got. I'm going to give you 100 years. And that's the kind of time they were giving mob guys in the 80s. They were killing us with time. I remember standing toe-to-toe with Rudy, and I said, hey, Rudy, bring it on. I beat you guys four times already. Let's go for round five. And honestly, people, that's about the dumbest thing you could ever do. You don't, you don't antagonize them anymore. They don't need any more incentive to come after you. But I was young and arrogant at that time. But fortunately, after a seven-month trial in federal court, I was acquitted in that case. Some of my co-defendants were convicted. They got 30 years. I lose that case. He gives me at least 50. I'm not here tonight. So I beat that. I got about 300 guys under me ready to do anything I tell them to do. I had all the uh, Russian mob guys in Brooklyn. I organized them all. We were in the gasoline business together for many, many years. And I had my own jet plane, my own helicopter. I had a house in Florida, a house in New York, a house in Marina del Rey, California. And quite honestly, people, I was bringing in 5 to $8 million a week into my operation. I had it going on. 29 years old, top of the world, ma. Had all the money I needed, going to be the boss of a major family, had all these guys around me, top of the world. Now, did I believe in God back then? Sure I did. I told you, I'm an analytical guy. When I look around this universe, I have to believe in intelligent design. God makes sense to me. I don't believe in evolution. It's very, very difficult for me to believe that some little speck of dust that nobody can explain what it was or where it came from just happened to appear out of nowhere and one day explode in this big bang and explode into everything. And basically, you know, with all the the intelligent discourse that these evolutionists have, when you really break it down, that's what they're expecting you to believe. To me, it's a lot easier to believe in God. To me, everything came from somewhere and intelligent design makes sense. I see it everywhere. And it only makes sense to me to believe it in this universe, that we have an amazing God, as it's related to us in the Bible. But I had no relationship with God. He was doing His thing, I was doing mine. And then something happened. Among many things I was doing back then, I was making movies. I had a production company in L.A. Smokey Robinson, dear friend of mine, and Leon Isaac Kennedy, I don't know if you remember him, he was really big back in the 80s. They come to me with a a screenplay for a breakdance movie. A lot of music and dance, a lot of rap music. But that's what you can listen to rap music on the radio. Not like this stuff today. Forget about this stuff today. But back then it was cool. We had the Sugar Hill Gang, Run DMC, the Fat Boys, Curtis Blow, old school rap. I had them all in my movie. I said, Smokey, I'll make the movie if we can film it in Florida. I got a house down here. I like the warm weather. Great. So we're filming this in Florida. I bring cast and crew from L.A. to work in the film, 50 professional dancers to dance in the film. I had everybody staying in a hotel in South Florida. We had just finished pre-production about three weeks, and Monday we were going into principal photography, the heavy work. Sunday I throw a party for everybody, kind of get everybody ready to do the, the, the heavy stuff. And a uh, beautiful day in Florida. I'll never forget, we had a barbecue in the back of the hotel. Guys, you'll appreciate this. I'm sitting by the pool. I'm minding my own business, just relaxing. And all of a sudden, out of the water comes this gorgeous, I find out, 20-year-old girl. She came out of the water. It's like everything went in slow motion for me. It was like a Pepsi commercial, right? And uh, I see her, and I'm blown away. She looked like a dancer to me, so I asked the choreographer. I said, Jeff, is that one of your dancers? He was sitting by me. He says, yeah. I said, what's her name? He said, Camille. I said, bring her over. I want to meet her. Big shot producer, she'll want to meet me. Why not, right? 
So she comes over. Her name is Camille. I introduce myself to her. Camille, my name is Michael. I'm your producer. I want to get to know you better. Let me take you to lunch. She says, sure. Very sweet, polite, gorgeous, right? I set a time and a place. I set up this uh, restaurant on top of one of the major hotels in Miami. I figure she'd come up there. I sweep her off her feet. She's mine, right? That was my attitude back then. I'm up there 15 minutes, a half an hour. 45 minutes later, she stood me up. Never showed up, right? Stood up a mob guy. She had no clue who I was. Trust me, I probably would have never seen her again. But anyway, I see her on the set the next day. I said, hey, what happened? We had a date. You didn't show up. You know what got me? She never made an excuse. She just kind of looked at me like with that look, ladies, you know, did you really expect me to come or was that kind of a thing? So she kind of put me on a spot. So I said, well, were you rehearsing? You got busy? What happened? She says, yeah, I was rehearsing. Can we try it again? Sure, no problem. We said another time and a place. I go, she stood me up again. Now, she did this to me five times. Now, if she was sitting here, she would roll her eyes and say, stop exaggerating. It wasn't five times. Guys, we know when we're rejected, right? Believe me, I was the offended party. It was five times. And uh, she didn't want to have anything to do with me. One night, we're having a cast meeting at 9.30 at night. She comes out at a meeting. She's with two of her friends. She's upset. Something's going wrong. I said, oh, this is great. Tailor-made for me. I've got to fire somebody, get, get rid of somebody. I'm going to be a hero, right? So I go over to her. She finally starts to talk to me a little bit. She tells me she's from Anaheim, California. She used to dance at Disneyland and Knott's Berry Farm. She had no clue what she was getting involved with with me. And she says to me, Michael, I need to go home. I said, Why? She said, my mom and dad are very strict. I've never been this far away from home before. I'm 20 years old. This is 3,000 miles away. They're not comfortable with me on this movie set. And she said, neither am I. There's some things happening on this set that I don't agree with. Now, honestly, it was a wild set. Music, dance, young kids. Got a little out of hand at times. But I'm saying to myself, well, you're a dancer. What's the big deal? But then I started to realize we used to go out to some of the clubs. She would never show up. She kept to herself. You know, one or two friends did her rehearsals back to the room because I always had my eye on her. So I said to her, what's the problem? And I forget exactly how she put it, but she said something like, well, I'm, a, I'm a, a girl of faith, or I'm a believer, or I'm a Christian, something like that. I said, well, I'm a Catholic. We got something in common. Let's talk, right? Anything to get to know her better. I got to cut to the chase, make a very long story short. I fell very much in love with this woman. She's now my wife of 31 years. And there's no doubt, people, that she was the catalyst that God used to lead me to the Lord. No doubt about it. And the reason I say catalyst, somebody can lead you to the Lord. Nobody can make you accept him. That's very personal. That's between you and God. So we start to know each other a little bit on the set, start to like each other a little bit. We wrap the movie, and I'll never forget, she tells me, Mike, she's very close to her mother. You've got to come home and meet my mom. I said, hey, no problem. I'm great with moms. Let's get on a plane. We go back to Anaheim. I meet her mom. People, her mom, Irma, was the most godly woman I ever met in my life. You meet Irma for two minutes, your name goes into her prayer book. She had a prayer book like a telephone book. I'm not kidding. And she didn't have to know your name. The name's in the book. I kid you not. The boy on the street corner with one shoe. The delivery boy that came to the house. Okay, the woman that I met that didn't have enough money to buy something in the grocery store. She saw you. You needed prayer. You went in her book. She would sit on her little porch, very simply, and pray and pray and pray. And you know what, people? I have never, until this day, witnessed a person that had more of a relationship with Jesus. She would talk to me like Jesus was standing next to us. It was kind of spooky at times. There was no shame in her game at all. She put it out there. She never hit me over the head with the Bible. She never preached to me. She just had a way about her that you knew she had a connection with the Lord. Loved Him. That woman prayed me to where I am today. There's no doubt in my mind. Prayer warrior. Prayed for me all the time. She prayed us through every struggle and every challenge that we had. And so here's what's happening. I'm starting to fall in love with this woman. But I'm saying to myself, 
They don't know anything about me. I'm this big guy from New York. They don't, there was no mob out in L.A. We called them the Mickey Mouse mob out there. They didn't have a presence out there. So she didn't really know anything about me. And I'm falling in love with her. I'm saying my life is a direct contradiction to everything these two women believe. Now, I wasn't buying into their faith, but I respected their faith because it was so real to them. I said, how is this going to work? And selfishly, I wanted this girl in my life, so I knew I had to make some changes. I had to. You know what, people? I want you to understand something. I told you where I was when I met her for one reason. It was never on my radar screen ever to walk away from this life. It wasn't even a thought. I'm my father's son. This is what I wanted to be. I was going to be the boss of the family. I'm mob guy all the way. I was indoctrinated into that life mentally, physically, every way. That's who I was. But all of a sudden, my love for this young girl is becoming more powerful than this lifelong bond, this love, this adoration that I had for my dad. It was becoming more powerful than this blood oath that I took to La Cosa Nostra. How do you explain that? I'm going to be honest, she wasn't the first beautiful woman I met in my life, but there was something about her. And now, 31 years later, and the way my life has gone, there's no question that something was God. God put that woman in my life. He had a different plan for me. Now I want to ask you this, who did God put in your lives? Who dragged you into this church tonight? Who gave you the idea to come here? People, let me tell you, our God is always trying to get our attention. He doesn't go to the next family, the next house, the next church, the next street or city or town. He's always trying to get our attention by the people we meet. Maybe by a great joy in our life. Maybe by something that's unpleasant in our life. He's always trying to get our attention. Are we paying attention? If you're in this church tonight, there's no doubt He's trying to get your attention. That's why you're here. You didn't come to hear a good mob story. You came here because the Lord is trying to get your attention, people. Now, I want to tell you what happens. I knew I got to make some changes. You know, I've been given such accolades for walking away from that life. Nobody's ever done that, Michael. What an amazing thing. I want to share something with you. I walked away from that life for selfish reasons. I didn't all of a sudden say, I'm a good guy. I'm going to become a good Christian. They're all bad people. I'm going to turn my back on a bad life. No way. I did it for selfish reasons. I betrayed my oath. I betrayed my father for selfish reasons. I wanted the girl and I knew I couldn't have both. That's it. That's what my decision was based upon. But I want to tell you what happens in our lives sometimes, people. Now, I did marry Camille and I did walk away from that life. But you know what happens sometimes? We walk parallel to God. Now, what do I mean by that? I believe I'm walking down that path and God is looking down at me and He's saying, oh, you married this girl, a good Christian girl. I put her in your life. You don't get it. One day you will. Oh, you walked away from that life. Great, Mike. I can't do anything with you when you're running around the streets of New York committing crimes. Right now, my son, you're walking parallel to me. But one day we're going to intersect. And you know what you're going to find out? None of this was your plan. This was all my plan. How many of us walk parallel to God? If you're in this church and you're not walking with Him, you're walking alongside Him because He will get your attention. And you will know at some point in time that He has a different plan and a purpose for your life. He will reveal that to you, people. It's only a matter of time. I married Camille in July of 1985. In December of 85, in order to try to get away from the government and try to live a life with this girl, I take a plea on another big racketeering case they're ready to indict me on. I had leverage because I beat the government so many times. Good to have leverage when you're dealing with the government. So I tell my lawyer, let's negotiate a plea. And I did. Ten-year prison sentence. $15 million in restitution. Five million in forfeitures. I gave up my plane, a helicopter, the whole bit. Okay, move out 
to the West Coast, marry Camille, and here was my plan. Very simple. I'll do a couple of years in prison. When I get out, I'll have parole and probation. I can use that as an excuse not to meet with the guys back in New York. Maybe after 10 or 12 years, they'll forget about me. I'll live happily ever after with Camille out on the West Coast. That was my plan, people. Had nothing at all to do with God. And I want to tell you this. I'm not the story here. Trust me on that. My wife is the story. That girl didn't have a clue. And she will tell you, I love my husband, but if God wasn't in the foundation of our marriage, I wouldn't have made it through. Too tough. I brought so much baggage into her life that she didn't anticipate. If it wasn't for her mom praying for her, her grandmother praying for her, her church being involved in it, and her, you know, just wanting to hang in there because God was in the foundation of our marriage, we would have never made You don't live on love alone, people. Sometimes there's outside forces just come in that are just too tough. I did five very difficult years in prison. Why? Because when I went in, it became public that I was walking away, and I had a lot of trouble. All hell broke loose in my life. Immediate contract on my life from my former boss. My father, unfortunately, went along with the contract. He was very, very upset with me when I betrayed my oath. In his view, you don't do that. Very upset. You know, in that life, you're taught. It's no more father and son. We're all equal once we take that oath. Unfortunately, he did turn on me. The feds came into the prison where I was in uh, Terminal Island, California. Francis, words all over the street from our informants. Quote, you're a dead man anyway. You can't walk away from that life. Cooperate with us. Help us out. We'll put you in a witness protection program. We'll protect your life and that of your families. I didn't want to do that. I wasn't looking to hurt anybody. I just wanted out of their life. They didn't take no for an answer. They gave me a very hard time in prison, people. I did five tough years. They put me on diesel therapy, meaning that they would put me on a plane or a bus and ship me to every prison in the country, keep me there for two or three days, shackled and handcuffed in the hole, okay, and then move me out and bring me to another place. It's the worst part of doing federal time when they put you on that diesel therapy, they call it trying to break you down. My poor wife would come and visit me in one prison. They'd ship me out the night before. She had no clue where I was. We went through five years of this. We got through it. Praise God. I'm out on parole for 13 months, the worst time in my life. I couldn't get anything going. I was a big shot mob guy on the street. I was like a fish out of water in L.A. I couldn't get anything going. Couldn't make a living. I couldn't put a house in my name, no utilities. Feds would come to me, Mike, there's people out here to hurt you. Whether they like you or not, if they know you're in trouble, they've got to come and tell you. We had to pick up and move several times when it was really hot and people were trying to come after me. They all thought I was going to become a major witness. Thirteen months of that. My wife, every time I walked out the door, we didn't have cell phones, we had beepers. She used to beat me. I had to run to a, cell, a pay phone. Honey, I'm okay. It's all right, because they put it in her head that I wasn't going to make it home. Went through that. One morning, I tell her, Cam, I'm going to the bank. When I come back, let's go to breakfast. I go to the bank five minutes from my house. I walk out, 15 agents. They slapped the cuffs on me, throw me into the paddy wagon, went into the bank, leaned all my bank accounts, took the keys to my car, drove it away, went to my house with a search warrant, cleaned us out, went into my wife's purse, took every penny out of there, and said, we're indicting your husband on another racketeering case. They can take everything under the forfeiture law. They said, you don't work. This is all his money. We violated his parole, quote, You'll never see your husband a free man again. She had a breakdown on me. She couldn't talk to me for almost two months. I thought I was going to lose her at that point. We had two little babies. <clears throat> They're driving me down to the federal jail in L.A., ready to send me back to Brooklyn in the morning where my case was. And this is my situation. They were fed up with me because I was playing a game with them. Like, maybe I would cooperate, but then when it came push to shove, I wouldn't do it. And finally, they had enough. 
They said, we don't want you to cooperate anymore. We violated your parole. We're indicting you on another racketeering case. We cleaned you out of everything you got. You'll never see the street again. They throw me in that six-by-eight cell in the federal jail in L.A., and here's my situation. I said, it's over. I said, they took all my money? Another racketeering case? People, they're complicated cases. You don't beat those cases with a public defender. I spent millions defending myself throughout my time. I said, they can't put me on the yard. I got everybody looking to hurt me. I'm going to spend the rest of my life in this six-by-eight cell. At the age of 39, I'm done. My wife, how's she going to wait for me now? She waited for me five years, 13 horrible months on parole. We got two little babies. She's only 27 years old. I'm going to lose the girl I did all of this for. I want to tell you this. That night was without a doubt the worst night of my life. I have felt every emotion you can feel in life from ecstasy right down to grief and everything in between. But I will tell you this. The worst emotion you could ever experience is hopelessness. When you figure it's over. Everything that's dear to you is gone. You're in this deep, dark hole. There's nothing you can do to claw yourself out. I'm telling you, my heart was pounding out of my chest. My head was killing me. I used to demean people that were suicidal. I called them weak. How do you not face up to your troubles? I don't do that anymore. I wasn't that brave. I wasn't suicidal that night. But honestly, it was too painful for me to think of my future. I wanted to lay my head on that pillow and not wake up. I couldn't envision myself losing everything and staying in that cell for the rest of my life. It was horrible. I can't even begin to tell you how I felt. And I was angry with God. Sure I was. You know why? I accepted Christ. My mother-in-law, my wife, accept Christ. He'll forgive your sins. Hey, great. I want some of that. What do I have to do? Get on my knees, say a prayer, really try to mean it? Did I really mean it? I don't know. It was very self-serving. Yeah, I want that my sins forgiven. Don't we all? But I remember my mother-in-law telling me, okay, that your acceptance of Christ is made whole and you surrender to Him. You've got to surrender to Jesus. I couldn't process that part. I'm a mob guy. I don't surrender. Maybe to the court to get a better sentence. Okay, but I couldn't process the surrender part. God helps those who help themselves. That's how I thought about things. But I've learned your surrender to Christ is made whole. Your acceptance of Christ is made whole and you're surrendered to Him. Because that's when Jesus can work through you. And people, there is no shame in surrendering to the greatest man that ever walked the face of the earth. Hands down, Jesus of Nazareth was the greatest man that ever walked the face of the earth. There was nobody like him. There nobody will ever be like him ever again. He was perfect in every, every facet of his character. I am proud today, okay, to say that that's who I want to emulate in my life. Can't come close. But that's something we should all strive and reach for because he was the greatest, no doubt about it. And of course, he's our savior. I'm laying there, I just want to die. Prison guard walks by my cell, looks in on me. Francis, you okay? You don't look good. I said, get away from me. I don't want to see any of you guys tonight. I chased that man away. He left. He came back a minute later. He pushes something through the slot on the door. It falls on the floor. I heard like a thump. I was groggy. I looked down. It was a Bible. Now, people, I didn't want a Bible. I didn't want to read about God. I wanted a bottle of Prozac or something. I wanted to forget what I was going through. But I'm looking down at that Bible, and I'm not exaggerating. I'm getting so upset. I'm feeling sorry for myself. Everything is kind of coming out of me. It took me maybe a minute. I jump off that cot, picked up the Bible, and I just slammed it against that cinder block wall as hard as I could. It's like everything came out of me. It took me about another minute, and I said to myself, you know what? I got nothing but enemies. There's only me and God in this cell. I don't need another enemy. And I believed in God. So I picked up the book, and I looked up at that cement ceiling, and I said, God, if you're really up there, you need to help me. Give me something to make me feel better. I can't deal with this. I'm losing it in here. I need help. 
I'm holding the book, and you know, honestly, I didn't know where to start with the Bible. I went to Catholic school. In Catholic school, you read the catechism. You don't really read the Bible. The priest reads it from the pulpit on a Sunday. I'm holding the book, and it just kind of opens up, and it falls open to the book of Proverbs. Was that a coincidence? I don't think so. Analytical guy, you know, I'm saying, and I start to read Proverbs. Solomon was brilliant. I don't care what faith you are. Solomon was brilliant. I started to read some of these Proverbs. I'm going, wow, this guy is smart. You know, when God said to Solomon in the book of Kings, nobody before you will ever be as wise, and nobody after you will ever be as wise, as a reward for what he didn't ask for, with the exception of Jesus, had a little advantage, he was God, nobody was as brilliant as Solomon. Amazing. And I'm reading, and all of a sudden I came to a verse, people, that just stopped me cold. First time in my life. Proverbs 16, 7. When a man's ways are pleasing to the Lord, even his enemies are at peace with him. Now, you know what got me? Even his enemies were at peace with him. I had nothing but enemies that night. Nothing but enemies. And then all of a sudden, I'm drawn back to when a man's ways are pleasing to the Lord. And I got convicted in that verse. It was almost as if the Holy Spirit was standing in front of me saying, Hey, what are you mad at me for? You're on this continent. You're mad at me. You're angry with me. You married the girl, but you didn't do that for me. And you left that life. You didn't do that for me either. And it's almost as if a bell went off and said, boo, you'd have done it for me. I can take care of your enemies because I'm God. Now you know this, people. You can read a Bible verse ten times and it can have ten different interpretations to you because I believe the Holy Spirit speaks to you through that verse according to your needs at that moment. And my needs were to hear some encouragement at that moment. And I never listened to God. And I'll tell you this. I've never seen God in a dream. And I've never heard Him speak to me audibly. I don't have that gift. Some people do. I don't have it. But He speaks to my heart all the time now because I have a relationship with Him. I pray for discernment and I want to listen. And I hear Him through my Bible and through other ways. In my heart. And that night was the first time that I heard Him because I was desperate. It caused me to read on a little bit more and I came to a verse that's really become the verse of my life. Everything starts here, people. And you know what? I think it should be the verse of every one of your lives. Now, I don't want to tell you what to do, but I... I'm a former mob guy. I have a tendency to do that. Okay? I'll sign some books for you people. Okay? I've signed thousands of books in my life. It used to be embarrassing to sign a book. It didn't feel right. Mob guys signing books. Some things just don't click. But then all of a sudden, you know, at one point, God said, no, you sign those books. But you don't ever sign your name in a book without putting this quote, this verse underneath it, because I want people's attention brought to it. It all starts here. Proverbs chapter 3, verses 5 and 6. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Isn't everything built on trust in our life? Lean not on your own understanding. It was almost like that night he was saying to me, you can't get out of this mess. Sometimes we just can't figure it out. In all of your ways, because he deserves this, acknowledge him and get this verse. This is important to me. I looked up the translation. He will, not he can, or not he might, but he will, Make your paths straight. People, that's my story right there. God summed it up. Right there. After I read that verse, I got convicted again and I said, God, I hear you. But you don't understand. I trusted my father more than anything. I took a blood oath. I gave my life up twice and look where it got me. I can't do this again, God. You've got to prove it to me. And I meant it. I meant it. I'll tell you what happened. The racketeering case, it fell apart. They never were able to indict me on it. Praise God. They tried. They couldn't indict me. 
But they did give me four years on the parole violation. That was the maximum. I spent 35 more months and 13 days in prison. That was it. That was the maximum with good time. 29 months and seven days in that hole. Six by eight cell, 24-7, me and God. They kept me in there. And people, I'm going to tell you something. That's not easy. I learned through that experience we weren't meant to be solo creatures. We were meant to be social. I saw a lot of guys not do well in that situation. It's tough. But for me, I had my Bible. I had my faith. I had incentive. I had a family outside. I had everything to live for. You look at that time, my prison Bible rather, if you see my prison Bible, there's more of my notes on there than there is Scripture. I read my Bible inside out and upside down so many times, you have no idea. I know my Bible. Now, I don't quote verses. I'm not that smart. But I know my Bible. I had my wife send me, she'll tell you, over 400 books on every faith. I studied every faith. I was really in a search for the truth. I had nothing but time on my hands. God blessed me, okay, with giving me the knowledge. I'm very into apologetics. I read everything on apologetics. Why? I want to defend my faith, not only to others, but to myself if I weaken. And I'll tell you how much it means to me, people, and I mean this, and I'm not saying this for any you know, great reason other than to be honest with you. My prayer every night, I have seven children. I have five grandchildren. I adore them all. But you know, there is a saying out there that the sins of the Father fall on the Son, on the children. And my prayer has always been, Lord, I did a lot of bad things in my life. Please, please, don't bring my sins upon my children. And God has honored that in a big way for me. But I will tell you this, people. Even if that were to happen, I might get angry with God. I might turn away for a minute. I don't know what I would do. But I'll tell you this. I could never disbelieve Him. The evidence is too powerful for me. Nothing can make me disbelieve. That's how strong it is right now. And again, I'm not saying it's to make me a good person. I'm just telling you that's the way it is. So, I want to end with this. I get out of prison. I had no clue what I was going to do. A speaker? I remember the pastor of my church. I hardly knew him, but he would send me books. He'd send me money. I used to get mad. I used to say, Cammy, why is this guy sending me money? I hardly know him. She used to tell keep quiet. He loves the Lord. In turn, he loves you. Just take it. I said, okay. So I get out, and he was this nice guy, Dr. Myron Taylor. He says, Michael, would you give your testimony to the church? Testimony? I didn't even know what he was talking about. I thought you did that from a witness stand. I didn't know what he was talking about. <laughs> Make a long story short, people. God has navigated this path for me. I've written five books. I'm on to a sixth. They're doing a big major movie about my life that goes into production at the end of the year. Two years ago, they did another movie, a documentary feature called God the Father. I've been all over television here in the United Kingdom, thanks to uh, Trevor McDonald and a few other people that have had an interest in me. I've done five or six documentaries, and God now has expanded this ministry all over the world. I've been to several countries and so blessed to be here, and hopefully I return. God has just taken this to another level. And I haven't decided this, people. I didn't make a real plan. Okay, my plan is to try to listen to what God has in store for me. Now, I want to tell you how this significant this is that I'm standing here tonight. Okay? My book, Blood Covenant, I have to apologize. For some reason, they got held up in customs. They're here in the United Kingdom, but they held them up. We were supposed to have them here tonight. We don't have them. They'll probably deliver on Monday. I wouldn't doubt it, but it doesn't matter. But if you read the inside cover of my book, Blood Covenant, it's my biography. And guys, you want to read a mob story? It's a mob story. I don't sugarcoat anything. Ladies, it's a love story. A story about me and my wife and how we got together, right? <laughs> But really, it's a story about how God can transform a heart. But you read the inside cover. Everybody predicted my death when I walked out of prison. Everybody. Life magazine wrote a huge story. Quote, if he holds to what he has promised or mocked the first time, 
a high-ranking member of the mafia will publicly walk away from his past and live. That was in 1985. Uh, 95, I'm sorry. Also, Ed McDonald was the head of the organized crime strike force. He was my prosecutor in New York. I get out of prison in 95. Ed goes on national TV. And he says, quote, I wouldn't want to be in Michael Franzese's shoes. I don't expect his life expectancy to be too substantial. He was very diplomatic in, in predicting my demise. Bernie Wells, the FBI agent who was on my case, followed him to the podium that same day. He wasn't diplomatic. He said straight out, Franzese will get whacked. And I think you know what that means in street terms. That was in 1995. I told you in 1975, I walked into a room with five other gentlemen, took an oath. Today, 41 years later, I'm the only one alive. Not one of those men died of natural causes. Every one of them were murdered. We had a big war in our family in 1990 while I was in the hole. And uh, 14 guys were murdered, and another 29 guys went to jail for life. Tough life, people. That was in 1990. Want a little bit more proof that when God has a plan for you, nothing will stand in the way? You saw the Fortune magazine article. It was written in 1986. Huge article, 50 biggest and most powerful mob bosses in the country. They uh, featured six of us. It was half the magazine. They featured six, six of us. I was one of the six. And they also had a chart with the 50 of us on there according to wealth and rank and power. I was number 18 on the list, the youngest guy on the list, five behind my friend John Gotti at that time. And people don't ask me how they make a list like this. They didn't ask for our tax returns. It was total nonsense, believe me. Just sold a lot of magazines. Guys were on there that shouldn't have been on there, the whole thing. But here's what's not nonsense about that list. Out of that list of 50, some 31 years later, 47 of those men are dead. Two of them are doing life in prison without parole. And I'm here for one reason and one reason only, and that's to give praise and honor and glory to my Lord and Savior and my hero in life, Jesus Christ. And what that should tell you is this. When God's got a plan and a purpose for you, and he does for every one of you sitting in here tonight, nothing is going to stand in the way. No mafia, no La Cosa Nostra, no gang, no sickness, no addiction, no death. Nothing will stand in the way of our God fulfilling his purpose in our lives except for one thing. You know what that is? That's every one of us. Because remember, people, our merciful and loving God is never ever an intruder on our lives. He's always an invited guest. And that's what it comes down to. And I'm going to give you all of an opportunity tonight because you know what? This is, this is a wasted time if I don't give you an opportunity okay, to, uh, to accept our Lord. And that's really what this is all about. Does the band want to come up and, and play something now? And before, before I do that, people, I just want to tell you, we have one book here. I really have to apologize because they asked me to have books available. But this book... Um, if you're on the edge, I put my heart and soul into this book. It's small, and the reason I did that is because I've got about 10,000 of them that I've donated into prisons throughout the United States uh, because I want people to be able to read it. It's a real call to our Lord and Savior, and I think, you know, I give my experience in this, and if you know anybody that's on the edge, maybe a friend, maybe somebody that needs a little encouragement, um, I recommend this, and again, I'm sorry we don't have everything here tonight, but I was asked to at least tell you about this one. This is the one they made the movie on, um, the uh, documentary feature. But, um, you know, people, I got to tell you, when you get a little older, okay, you start to realize that we're not guaranteed another minute in this life. We're really not. And we really have to dig deep into our conscience and our soul and say, what is this all about? There's a day when we're going to leave this earth and we're going to go somewhere. And, you know, God gave me a very healthy 
fear of hell. And I mean that. And sometimes it's good to have a healthy fear of something that's no good. And when I was in that hole for almost three years, I would say, God, if this is what hell is like, but a lot worse and never-ending, a constant six-by-eight cell, 24 hours a day, seven days a week with nothing around me, I don't want any part of this. And it motivated me to know a little bit more about my Lord and Savior. And it was a healthy fear of hell. And I'm not trying to scare anybody, but look, we've got to take life the way it is. We've got to be realistic about things. Okay, we all know one thing. We're going to leave this earth one day. And where are we going to spend the rest of eternity? That's really what it's all about. And we have a guarantee, a rock-solid guarantee from our Savior that if we confess our sins and we accept Him as our Lord and Savior, then we're going to spend all of eternity in the kingdom of heaven with the people that we love, with our God. A place where it's going to be nothing but happiness. That's where we're going to spend of eternity because our God loves us and that's where He wants all of us to be. And He only asks of us to believe in His Son. That's it. So I want to encourage all of you, yes, this is important to me and hopefully it's passionate enough because I've seen too many people maybe go the other way. And we as Christians that really have a love for the Lord, we want to share it. That's really what it's all about. We want to share it with everybody that we know. And I want to tell you this, people. You know what? I feel a responsibility to what I do. Do you know why? Because this world would be a lot more horrible place if it wasn't for my Christian brothers and and sisters all over the world that do so much for people that they don't even know because they have a heart for the Lord. Churches all over America, and I'm sure all over this country, are reaching out to help people. And I feel a responsibility. I want to bring as many people as close to the Lord as I possibly can because it will make this world a better place. And not only that, it will ensure our place in paradise. So I'm going to give you an opportunity to do that now. If you're not walking with the Lord, people, if you haven't accepted Him, and people, listen, there's no shame in this game. Our God tells us very clearly, if you deny me in front of men, then I'll deny you in front of my Father. We don't want that. You know one of the worst things? When I'm up here, you know the thing I think about? You know what motivates me? Like I said, God knows our hearts. One day we're all going to stand before our Lord and Savior. And He's going to pass judgment on us. And there was something in the Bible that scared the heck out of me. I don't ever want to be there in front of Him one day and He looks at me. And I said, Lord, look what I did. I spoke to thousands of people in Your name. But He knows my heart and He'll look at me and say, I don't know You. I don't ever want to hear those words, ever, because he knows our hearts. So I'm going to put it out there now. I'm going to give you an all an opportunity, people. I want you to bow your heads for a minute. Everybody close your eyes and bow your heads. And if there's anybody there now that wants to accept our Lord, I'm going to ask you to raise your hand. Raise your hand. Nobody's looking. Raise your hand. Raise it up high. We have one. Anybody else? There's two. There's three. One in the back. Anyone else? There's another one. There's four. People, this is the time. Take this seriously. Like I said, this is the first day of the rest of your life. God will do amazing things in your life if you allow Him to. You give Him the opportunity. You know, one of the greatest things I ever heard when I entered the mob life, something that I never forgot, something that was so meaningful to me was, I have your back, Mike. Well, knowing that Jesus Christ has our backs throughout this life is the greatest thing that we could know because through every struggle, even through the bad times, He gives us encouragement and hope and He gets us through it. So leave your hands up for one minute. Any more? Those of you that raise your hands, any more? Anyone else? 
Lord, I want everybody, we're going to bow our heads, we're going to say a prayer. And repeat after me, all those of you that raise your hands. And the others, just pray for the people that did raise their hands. Dear Lord, I know that I'm a sinner. And I'm sorry for my sins, Lord. I am sincerely sorry for my sins. And I know that I can never be perfect. But I'm asking for your forgiveness right now as I sit here in front of you. And Lord, from this moment on, I'm going to accept you as my Lord and Savior. I believe you died on the cross for my sins. And I believe you rose on the third day. And that you sit today at the right hand of the Father. And Lord, from this point on, I give my life to you freely and willingly for the rest of my life. Amen. For those of you that, uh, that raised your hands, there's people here that want to pray for you. You could either come down now or pastor will instruct you on what to do. But they want to say a prayer with you. And, and people, I, I, uh, I really appreciate you. Bless me just by being in here tonight and allowing me to, to give my testimony and share what God has done in my life. And I really do hope, for those of you that are thinking about it, maybe didn't raise your hand tonight, I hope that it really sinks in and you give this a lot of thought because the amazing things God will do in your life, you have no idea, people. And I can sit here the rest of the night and witness to you the things that I've experienced as a result of my walk with the Lord. But God bless you all. Thank you very much. See you in the back. Pastor, thank you.